0: Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 2, if you would, tonight. Exodus 2, we'll read verses 23 through 25. If you want a title tonight, I'm going to call it, I'll show you why. I call it the up and down God. You'll see why in a bit. and God knew questions classic questions questions that even often at times keep people become to from becoming believers and that is why do people suffer Christians struggle and they go a little more narrow-minded to their own lives and why do God's people suffer and then perhaps tonight you might even become more personal right down at home where you live why do I suffer you might go on to ask even more so, why do I suffer this much? Why do I suffer this long? Why, why has this gone on uh, in the time period that it has? Often, these questions are accompanied by, where is God in my suffering? Is he there? Does he even care? In Bible times, in the context of this ...story that we're looking at in the book of Exodus... ...Israel was in a severe slavery situation. And I mean severe. You can see for yourself the word groan or groaning is used in verse 23 and 24. Slavery is used twice in verse 23. Later on in the passage it says they were afflicted. It says they cried a couple different times. It said that God knew their sufferings later in chapter 3... So you have these words, slavery, and all the experience with taskmasters, it says. And the Bible says they were groaning. It's a word that means burdened. I mean, it was a lifestyle that was constantly oppressing them. And that's actually a word in chapter 3, too. It was like a heavy weight smashing them down. They couldn't stand up straight, literally in life sometimes, um, Suffering, affliction, crying, begging, asking in their suffering for God to do something. It was a really bad time. On top of all of that, and you may, feel, you may say, wow, well, it sounds familiar. Not only is it a bad time, it was a really long bad time. Because the beginning phrase of verse 23 says, during these many days. And we know that the story right before this is Moses living his life in Midian, And that's 40 years. So we're talking about a generation of people that have gone through this for most of their whole life. And so this is how they've lived. And this is maybe how you live. It feels that way anyways. So perhaps any groaning this week in your own afflictions? Any reaching your hands up to the skies and saying, God, where are you? And not disrespectful, but saying, where are you in this? God, do you care about what's taking place? And that happens in our lives, modern context, when we face cancer. You get the diagnosis and you don't know what, you're gonna, what your future is, where your hope is. When you face mistreatment in your own home or at your job from your boss or um, perhaps some of our teenagers and the way they get treated by other students at school. Um, You begin to wonder, how long do I have to go through this chronic physical condition? I I visit people in the hospital. I begin to wonder, I know they're thinking this, how many more times am I going to be in this bed? And you think about the conflicts and the relationship you have. And perhaps yours is not tonight a slavery experience so much, but it was for Israel. And some of the similarities are very parallel. For them, slavery experience meant it was a freedom issue that they weren't free to do what they want. And we would say it this way, they had difficult people in their life, and I wrote them down. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, taskmasters. I mean, at every level of society, whether it's at the top, or whether it's right there in their own, t- in their own neighborhood, where they had someone over them telling them to get up and do this and work this hard, and you only get this much, and governing every aspect of it. The- they had taskmasters. So they had difficult people, and then I said not only was it a freedom issue, but it was a feelings issue. I mean, you can't read this text and only think of the facts. I mean, the Bible wants you to feel it. I mean, they're groaning, and this is like a sigh. It's like, wow, you know, it's like, I can't go on anymore. This is, I can't do this another day. Have you ever said that to yourself? I mean, it probably obviously wasn't true, but on that day and probably many other ones, you felt like it. So they had only had difficult people, but difficult pressures, pressures that didn't subside, pressures that just didn't go away, and they felt awful a lot of the time. And then it wasn't just a freedom issue or a feelings issue for them, it was a faith issue because it was not just difficult people, difficult pressures, but it was a difficult perspective. How do I still love a God and put faith in a God and have hope and trust in a God Year after year, can I say, decade after decade, and nothing changes, and perhaps, if anything, it just gets worse. So how do I keep, yeah, God, I get up this morning, oh, I just praise you. I can't can't wait to be slapped around by the taskmaster today. I can't wait to work endless hours and to get practically nothing out of it. And what this text does for all of us tonight, as it did for them, is it presents a choice to us. It's this, will you respond in a God-centered way or a me-centered way? And let me tell you this, without giving excuses, it's hard not to be me-centered when things are this bad. This isn't just like I stub my toe and I'm going to have to take off a day of work. This is a lifestyle of ugliness on every level of their life. And it's easy because it'd be easier to blame God than to believe in God, would it not? I mean, it would be far easier to test God than to trust God in an ongoing circumstance like this. Maybe a more practical way to frame the question would be like this. Will I see my story, which includes suffering, as part of God's bigger story, or will I isolate my story from him altogether and by that, I mean this. You know, Exodus 2, here's a, what, wait, you probably didn't know this, follows Exodus 1, I'm not lying. But in Exodus 1, is the story about how God brings them, is the beginning of the, what's the name of this book? Oh, the Exodus See, this has been a long time, and the, the story begins with, hey, Joseph died, and the Pharaoh doesn't know who he is anymore, and so they're not, they don't care about the Israelites. All they care about them is they might get too many people side with their enemies and wipe them out. That's what the text says. And so it's a whole new world out there. This isn't the same Egypt that it used to be when Joseph was around and his memories hung on in Pharaoh's mind. It isn't like that anymore. No one cares about us anymore. So what do you do, it's, you know, he says. So he, here's the thing. He's saying this has been our experience. But see, if I want to tell you tonight, me-centered people respond in a very selfish way to their suffering if they see their story as mainly about yourself. That's what me-centeredism is. God wants you to say, hey, here's my story. It includes all this suffering. But I want you to see that my story is Your story is part of my really, really big story. God's really big story is redemption. How he gets all the nation out of slavery. And how the exodus is prefiguring the greatest exodus that we'll ever need. Jesus dying on the cross so that we could get out of sin. Not being slaves to Pharaoh, but being slaves to Satan and sin. See, that's the biggest exodus. And this is going to be the picture of it. See, this is the big story, but too often our lives get so small and so focused that our pressures and our suffering and our pain is so great. All we can see is, God, what does this do to me? And this story wants to tell you that you can't live your life that way. In fact, can I tell you? There's two things you do have to have if you don't want to get warped into the me centered approach and response to your pain. And to have a God-centered one, you're going to have to have two things or see two things about God. Can I point them out, unpack them one at a time? Here's the first one, if you're writing them down. Know this, God is purposely involved in your pain. Let me say it again. God is purposely involved in your pain. Look at the text, and I want to show you some things. 2.23 says, During the many days that the king of Egypt died, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out to help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Now watch. In the next two, two verses, there are four verbs and all four of these verbs are predicated by God. Okay? He could have just said the name of God one time and said God did all four of these things and list them. That is not the way Moses writes it. But instead, with every one of the things he does for his people in their pain, he puts his name and puts it in front of every verb. Watch. Circle them. 224. And God, here's the first, and God heard. See it? Circle it. And God heard their groaning. Second one, and God remembered. Later on, he says, God, verse 25, God saw. See it? God heard, God remembered. God saw, and the last one, and God knew. See them all four in a row in a two-verse span with God's name in front of them. Here's why. Because he does not want you to think, and this is it's the easiest way to slide into, somehow that your suffering and your pain and your sorrows and your, are somehow random. They're not random. They're not some big cosmic accident that nobody is in control over see, Israel's suffering in Egypt for as long as it was, it did not catch God off guard. He wasn't on the throne saying, didn't see that one coming. It doesn't surprise him. In fact, he wants to show all of us tonight that he did more than that. Watch. He planned it. Are you comfortable with that? Because it's what God says. I'm going to tell you, if you're not, you should be. And I'm going to tell you why. Hold your finger. And turn back a few pages to Genesis 15. You see the little verb we said in verse 25, and it says at the end, and God knew. In other words, God knew about their sufferings. He looked down and saw, so he had knowledge of it. He wasn't ignorant. But I'm going to tell you this: it's even more than that. Write it down. God just didn't know their suffering. He just, it says he knew. He just didn't. He, he foreknew too. Can I tell you that? He just didn't know when it was happening at the time. He knew it way before it ever began to happen. Let me show you what the Bible says about this event. Hundreds of years before it ever took place. Genesis 15 and verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And Moses isn't even around yet. Way before Moses. Moses. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, listen to this. Know for certain that your offering, this is Israel, your offering will be sojourners or strangers, aliens, foreigners, in a land that is not theirs, i.e. Egypt. And will be servants there, i.e. slaves. And it says, and they will be afflicted, afflicted there's the suffering and pain for how long yeah the whole time they were in egypt but i will bring judgment on the nation egypt that they serve and after they will come out with great possessions remember how they took all their jewelry and their gold and silver and everything and as for you you shall go to your fathers in peace you'll be buried in a great old age listen to this he not only guarantees the bad things that are going to happen and plan them but he also says let me tell you i've also already planned all the good things Look what he says. And they shall come back here. They're going to come back to the promised land. They're going to get out of Egypt. And he says, listen, in the fourth generation, I already have it down to the exact time. For the iniquity of the Amorites, listen to that, is not yet complete. Now that is a huge, that text is pregnant with meaning. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I wrote down these four things. Remember I told you this? God purposes, God is, working purposely in your pain. What is he doing here? Let me give them all for you. God has purposed the who of their sufferings. It would be Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So God knew exactly who it was that would suffer them, who would cause their suffering. God knows the difficulties that you have in your relationships. Whether it's at home or work or anywhere else, he knows all the who's, in your life that cause you problems, he does. He's known every one of them, whether it's your parents and you were a child growing up and now you're adult and it's still a struggle for you. He, he knows all of that. He knows all those people, all the difficult people you face. He knows every one of them, every detail. Listen, you know what he says next? God has also purposed the wear of your sufferings. He goes, You're going to suffer in a land that's not yours. So this is great. God only knows who's going to trouble you, but he knows where it's going to trouble you. He knows whether it's at college or at your job or in your home. He knows exactly where. He's got all the details down, God does. He says, not only that, but I've also purposed the win of your sufferings. I know how long it's going to last. You're going to be there 400 years and the fourth generation. I'm going to bring you out. So God says, see, Pharaoh isn't in control of how long you're in Egypt. Pharaoh isn't in charge. Your taskmasters aren't in charge. I'm in charge. Do you believe that? That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it, after about 100 years or so? When your parents died doing it and your grandparents died doing it. Remember, you might say, when was, man, I'd love to be the fourth generation. But here's what God says. I've already purposed the who, the where, the when. And listen, listen, and this is maybe the most important. He's already purposed the why of your sufferings. Now, this is the hardest one for us to get. He says, because the punishment and judgment of the iniquity of the Amorites, which is the people who live in the Canaan land, is not complete yet. They're not ready for me to judge them. I'm giving them more time to turn around. You know, the hardest thing when you're suffering is, is not to think, is is to think this, that my problems are mainly about me. That is the hardest thing to get past. But you know what the Bible says? Why, you might say, what in the world, if God loved me, why would he wait 400 years? Are you serious? 400 years? I mean, you would get mad if he waited four weeks or four months. You would be fed up and almost quit at four years. Are you talking you're four centuries? Really? Why is he doing that? And see, if I told you, well, let me tell you, the real reason is um, nothing to do with you. What? Yeah, it's about giving other people a chance before I wipe them out by you, with you. See, that's hard for us to grasp, isn't it? Very hard for us to grasp. Because if you're living in the wrong story, hear me. You will always have the wrong perspective about what's taking place in yours. See, if you're living in your story apart from God's, yours isn't submitted to the big story. You don't see the things in your life as part of the redemption plan. You won't have room for others in your suffering. You won't be able to see, oh yeah, God's doing this in me because he wants to do something eventually through me. you, You won't get that. That's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 1, hey, you comfort others, listen, with the comfort you were comforted with. When you go through tribulation, sorrow, here's one purpose, ready? So when when other people are going through the same thing, you can sit by and tell them, hold on, because God is here. He's there working in your situation. See, you are supposed to go through it so you can help others go through it, but we don't get that far very often. We just think, oh, it's my problems are all about me. It's all about me. And here's the, here's the real danger, is that you become the main character in your story. When all along, Scripture's very clear, you're not the main character, God is. God's the main character in your story. But if you're living in your story apart from his story, you will never get that. And you'll just wonder, what in the world are you doing, God? Why don't you hop to it? Why aren't you answering my prayer? Why aren't you changing this? And God says, I am just not the way you want and when you want, but I've got all the wins and the whys and the whys. I have all that down. You're just living in the wrong story. That's why you can't get it. That's why you can't submit to it. Can I tell you this? God-centered response to suffering doesn't eliminate groanings. You're still going to groan. You're still going to have sufferings, afflictions. You're going to cry out. To God. That, that is not eliminated because you put God at the center of it. But what it does is give you the ability to see purpose in it a different kind of purpose. See, without God-centered purpose, you'll see your sufferings as misery, not as ministry. You won't see that. There's so much more to what's going on in your life past your individual pain if you'll let God be God and you'll live your life in his story. How can God use your divorce because of an unfaithful spouse to you how can you get past the pain of all of that and being alone and all the financial problems that come with it? Because God maybe put you through that for a purpose. Can you see it that maybe God wants you to help others who have been divorced? How can God tell his story through you when the doctor says you're cancer and you have a year to live? How in the world are you going to make it past that? You're not gonna I lay in my bed sometimes and I tell God, what if I don't get up tomorrow and I don't see Mackenzie, and I get married. I don't walk her down the aisle. I've pastored and did so many weddings for people and see how their dad walks them down. I'm looking forward to that, yet kind of to get rid of her, but nevertheless, (laughs) to, to really enjoy that in my life. But what if I don't see that? What if I don't get that opportunity? Maybe God has a reason for that because maybe then if I don't make it to that point, Before I get to the end, I can tell others, here's how you can deal with some big disappointments in your life and still love God supremely. See, how do you make sense of some of the most difficult mistreatments by people that you're closest to? Because if you only think it's about how you feel about it and not what God wants to do with it, you'll miss half, if not most, of what he wants to do in your life. You know how the Bible is rich in this passage? Look at verse 24. So God heard their groaning. Now, I put these two God words together. God heard, listen, and then he attaches it with the conjunction, see? And God heard their groaning and God remembered. What did he remember? Now, listen, wouldn't you think that the next line is gonna say, and God heard their groaning and God remembered to do something to free them from slavery? It doesn't quite say that. It says this, and what did he remember? His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're all going like, okay, I can think of a lot of things I'd rather have you remember. About me personally, I mean, you could say this. um, God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for hundreds of years. Um, Could you look right here? And God says, I am. But you know why I'm looking right here? Because I made a promise And God says, I remembered because I'm telling a story. And that story began with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you know why I am looking at you? Because you're in that story, even though sometimes you don't live like it. He says, the covenant is my story. How I'm calling out a people for my name, and I'm going to deliver them out of Egypt. And eventually, I'm going to really deliver them out of sin. And you're in that story. Do you remember that? Because I do. That's why I'm acting See, God wants to say, I'm acting your story tonight, and know what it is? It's not even ultimately because you're in pain, although God cares about that. You know why he's ultimately doing it? For his glory. That's why he's doing it. He's telling his story with your life. I'm sorry. And often he writes pages and chapters with your pain. And your suffering, and the insults, and the mistreatment. And God remembered, Genesis 8, 1, God remembered Noah. Same phrase, and God remembered. He remembered the wickedness of the earth and how he wiped out everybody and the whole world was flooded. And then it says, and I remembered Noah. You know why? Because Noah was the last extension of the story. Genesis 19, 29, it says, and God, after he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and removed Lot, he says, and God remembered Abraham. You know why? He's the progenitor of the Israelites. God remembered Rachel, Genesis 30 and verse 22. She couldn't have a child, and God looked on her and said, listen, there's a lot of barren women in Israel, and I feel bad for all of them, but I'm looking on you and I'm doing something. Why? Because Rachel would have the next progenitor after Abraham. And the reason God favored her wasn't because per se she was more special than anybody else, but she saw herself in God's story. And then Hannah, in 1 Samuel 1:19 begged God for years and years to have a son, and she never could have it. And all of a sudden, God gives it, and it says, And God remembered Hannah, and he gave her Samuel, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. And God remembers, and he still does, because when Jesus was dying between two thieves on the cross, what did the thief ask Jesus? Please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He remembered the thief. Why? Because he was a good guy. Hardly. He's there for capital crimes. He murdered Romans. Why did he remember him? Because God says, today I want your story to be swapped out for mine. That's what God's looking for. He has a purpose in all of these things. So here's the first thing we said tonight. God Purposely is involved in your pain. If that was all tonight, it would be good, but not enough. Why? Because that would mean God is really, really knowing, and He is, and He's really, really powerful, and He is, but it would mean that He could be this distant deity way out in heaven somewhere, but never really get close to you. He says, Well, I got a purpose, and I'm going to do something about it, but maybe He would send an angel, or maybe He would just wave His hand, or but you know the Bible says? That isn't God. God purposely is involved in your pain. Second thing, God is personally involved in your pain. Look at what the Bible says. We put together these, these two. God heard and God, rem- I mean, sorry, God remembered and God knew. But look at the other two. The other two are God heard and God saw. See, you have to be close, don't you, to hear someone groan? don't you have to be close to see someone suffer you do and god says i'm not a distant deity i'm not removed way out there from your problems god says i've come down close in fact that's where i got this sermon the up and down god look at the text says and it says and their cry look what it says in verse 23 and their cry for rescue from slavery listen to this Came up to God, so here's your prayers and you're begging God to do something. Goes up to Him, and His response, chapter three and verse seven, is this. Then the Lord said, "I have surely now watch the see and the hear words are repeated, but there's going to be an addition. And so as it says that He knows all three of the other ones are in here, but watch what He says. Then the Lord said, "I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt." Here it is again. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. Ready? I know their sufferings. Now, what does he do? He takes action. Remember, your cries went up to him. And what does it say he does in response? And I have come, what? I have come down to rescue them. That's God. That's the God of Christianity. Christianity. The pagan gods in the Exodus Egyptian world, the New Testament world, were gods who way off from all of their subjects. They wanted their people to do something for them. They wanted them to do all these things, and the gods only came down to mess up and ruin the lives of those they supposedly worshipped them. But this god, the god of the Bible, is unlike any other god. He doesn't just say remove from people's problems and throw a thunderbolt or a lightning bolt to get their attention and say, come on, do great things for me. You know what God says? I hear your problems, and I'm coming down to where you are to rescue you. There is no other God like the God of the Bible. But why does he do that? Can I just say it one more time because the text says it? Look at verse 7. He says, I do all those things. Verse 8, I've come down to deliver you out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring you out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, blah, 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 he says. And he says, why would I do all that, he says. Look at verse number 6. And he said, because I am the God of your father. Who? That same old line again. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here's what we know. God hears me. And God sees me because I'm in his story. And can I tell you this? It doesn't matter. He doesn't see pastors more than people in the pew. He doesn't see really great people and hear them and not so great people. It's because you're in his story. Because his son came and died for you. See, when I went to Israel and I stood on Mount Carmel where Elijah battled, so to speak, with the prophets of Baal. And all day long, the prophets of Baal are jumping around, cutting themselves, frantically praying that Baal, by the way, on Mount Carmel in the land geographically, Baal is the god of thunder and rain, and they were on the home turf. That's where he, quote-unquote, lived. Because all the gods except Yahweh are territorial land gods. So Baal only had to exercise authority in the piece of land he couldn't do it anywhere. He had to be a certain place. And that was his place, was Mount Carmel. And it was high mountain. So he could make it rain there. He could have thunder and fire come out of the heaven. That was his thing. Lightning, thunder, rain. That was his big deal. So when they're on top of the mountain, his home territory, and the test of who really is the God, Baal or Yahweh, and he can't make it rain, and he can't make it thunder and lightning, and he can't get fire to come down on the altar... Dude, the guy's swinging and missing and everything he does on his own home court, field, whatever. He, he can't do a thing because his people are crying and the, the cries are going up to him. And guess what? There is nothing coming down. But when Elijah prays one simple prayer, says, God, show them today that I'm your servant and you are God. His prayer goes up, and what comes down? Well, fire, not enough just to consume the the sacrifice, but the stones, the dirt, the altar, all the water, and everything else around it. You know why? Because that's our God. When our cries go up, our God comes down, and we don't have to beg him, and he's not out on vacation somewhere, and as, as graphic as it is, Elijah in Hebrew says, and he's not in the bathroom somewhere. I mean, that's really what the text says. He was mocking him. See, that's who our God is. He comes down. Stephen, and I'll close with this, in Acts 7, he gives this long speech in history of Israel's history. And he's trying to convince the religious leaders that they've crucified Jesus, who was the deliverer. And he goes through all this speech stuff, and he comes to Moses and said, see, remember the story? And he quotes our passage about when God heard and saw his people, and he delivered them, and he sent down Moses and all of that. Remember all that? and he follows it up with, there's a greater Moses here, and it's Jesus, see, and he came down from heaven for you, and you rejected him. See, that's a shame, isn't it? That there's a God in heaven who's writing a story, the story of the world, and he hears and sees your personal cry, and your problems, and your pain, and he wants to come down, but see, You don't want him to come down the way he wants to deliver you because you're writing your own story. See, perhaps for some of us tonight, it's time just to set the pen down and to say, I'm not the author anymore. And I want Jesus to come and rescue me in such a way that fulfills his purposes and brings him glory. Jesus said twice in John 6, 38 and 42, for I have come down from heaven because we needed him. Aren't you glad he came down? Moses came down Jesus came down but can I tell you the last one see Moses isn't here and Jesus is in heaven although he's always with us but you know how God works in people's pains and sufferings now it's called the church we're his hands and feet so when we hear people cry and they're in pain and they're in suffering you know how God responds well he responded first sending Moses and then he sent Jesus and now he sends you and he sends me that we should get into people personally.